of introduction as we um, look at this text. And it is, I don't know if it's unusually warm in here to anybody else. I've done what I can do, but I am going to have a rag up here just in case I need it. I'm prepared this time, okay? Um, as a father, one of, one of the things I love to do, if you need a Bible, Ed's got some. You can put your hand up. He'll put one in there. As a father, one of the things I love to do with my kids is tell stories. Tell stories. Um, it's a little bit harder as they grow up to find stories that they like want to listen to and are engaged in. But with Noel, you know, going to be three here shortly, all I have to do to make her mouth hang open, uh, her eyes locked in like this, is to utter the words once upon a time. The minute those words come out of my mouth, she, She's there, right? She knows. She doesn't know what to expect, but she knows something is coming. She's instantly captivated. She knows daddy's about to tell her a story. Folks, the verses that we're going to look at this morning, the very first words of the Bible, should have the same effect on us. The first three words of Genesis should have a very similar effect on us, regardless of where you come from this morning. If, for those of you who are a believer, who follow the Lord Jesus, who call the God of the universe your God, folks, this is your story. For those of you who may be new to Christianity, perhaps exploring or considering the faith, this is an invitation to explore the things of God. These words in the beginning. Now, just like when I tell a story to my kids, specifically to Noel, there is no shortage of challenges as I tell that story. Likewise, as we consider this story that's before us this morning, we too will face a certain set of challenges. First is really just the way this story is received in the world at large. At best, there's many in this world, at best, who would see this as a story that is out of date, right? At worst, that it is simply wrong. It should be mocked. It should be despised. Folks, we have to recognize we live in a world that, by and large, does not see value, the transformative value that is Genesis chapter 1. Many just see it simply as good poetry, maybe a good myth, and they put it in that category. So, so the first challenge is we recognize the world that we live in doesn't necessarily embrace this story, but oftentimes can even be hostile to it. The second challenge is that as we approach this text... The assumption we often make and put on this text, specifically Genesis chapter 1, is that it must be able to answer all the questions of modern science. The questions that our modern mind is asking, folks, are not necessarily the same questions that Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are answering. It's different, okay? So... There's a couple of unique challenges we face as we approach that. And those challenges, we, we need to recognize they exist, right? That they exist, that they're there. These challenges, though they are 
important. They can also cause us, and this is why I mention them, they can also cause you and me to lose the personal immediacy that comes along with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Let's establish, first of all, what they're not about. What is Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25, what is it not about? It's not about the age of the earth. It is not about the length of days. It's not about taking science and pitting it against religion. This is what Genesis 1 is not about. About 30 years ago, a great Christian thinker by the name of Francis Schaeffer um, wrote a very helpful book, one that has been helpful for me in preparation for this, um, called Genesis in Time and Space. And as he writes this book, his argument is pretty simple. He argues that the way out of some of the debate and some of the controversy that surrounds Genesis 1 was to approach it by asking the simple question. What is the least that Genesis 1 must be saying for the rest of the Bible to be making any sense at all? Folks, the truth is we could sit here all day long and we could be considering and exploring the literary genre or the structure or the symbolism that we may find in Genesis chapter 1. One insight after another, day after day, and simply we could be left scratching the surface of what is and scratching our heads of what it means, okay? We could devote a, a tremendous amount of time to studying these words. And all we will do is expose our ignorance, okay? What I'm interested in this morning is the absolute minimum. What Genesis 1 must be saying for the Bible to make any sense and for us to make any use of it. What is the very, the irreducible least that it must be saying? For some of us this morning, these words can seem all too familiar. Maybe we have a history in church. Maybe we are familiar with the Bible. And this is the, this is the most famous passage in the scripture. So for some of us, these words can be very familiar. And as a result, as we approach them, we can simply miss the downright urgency of the truth that we find here. So let's pray against that, okay? Genesis 1 is incredibly helpful, not just in understanding the cosmos. It is that, but it's more than that. It is helpful in understanding how you and I live life day after day just as it comes to us. That's what we're interested in this morning. So I'm going to read these 25 verses. There's 25 verses, so it's a lot of reading, okay? I want to ask you to stay with me, okay? I'm going to read 1 to 25. Next week, we're going to focus specifically on being made in God's image. So we're just going to look at verses 1 through 25 this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let me just pray real quick. Father, as we approach this sacred text, Lord, we are reminded this morning that this is your word. This word is true. Lord, we thank you that you do not hold back. We pray right now that you would speak to us as your people, that you would show us what it is you would have us to hear. Lord, that we would do good to write it on our hearts and to follow it. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So let me tell you what the point is right out of the gate. God can visit that which is smothered in darkness, cold and empty. 
A world that is simply without. And he can make a brand new world. A world full of life and total possibility. A world that flourishes. That's what God can do. If you're sitting here today, maybe closed and guarded, broken or empty, what the Bible is saying in Genesis 1 is that your deadness is the very canvas that God uses to create. Folks, this is really good news. This is really good news. Every single one of us sitting in here this morning should be able to identify with that need in some way, shape, or form. As we approach this text this morning, we are not simply asking, what does it mean? The question that we should be asking is, how can I get in on this? That's what we should be asking ourselves. Folks, Genesis 1 has far-reaching implications, as necessary as this chapter is for launching us into the grand narrative of the Bible. It is just as needed for helping us deal with life one day at a time, in whichever direction it comes at us. Yes, it informs our understanding of the beginning of all things, but even more than that, it tells us how we can begin to live right now. And some of us can get so caught up, I know this is sometimes when I approach Genesis 1, my temptation is to get so caught up into what does it all mean, how does it all work, that I can forget what it means to me right here and right now. So as we walk through the book of Genesis, and we're probably only going to get through verse, uh, chapters 1 through 11 this fall, but as we walk through these really important chapters, that's the question that we should be reaching for, trying to answer is, what does this mean for me here and now, so this morning, just three things I want to point out that we learned that I think are the irreducible minimum of what is being said so we can make sense of the whole story. And it should be no surprise that these three things have to do with one person, and that is God himself. As you read 1 through 25, you are introduced to just one character, okay? And that is God himself. The word God appears some 35 times in this chapter. And it is clear that the emphasis of the chapter is not on the how, but it's on the who. Though the Bible starts with in the beginning, don't be tempted to think that there is nothing before that. God himself comes jumping off of these pages, verse after verse, not just as the character introduced in the story, but rather as the central singular focus of the story. Folks, there's nobody before him. There's nobody beside him. There's nobody like him. He has no beginning, and we know he has no end. He is unmistakable. He is unchanging. He is simply the God who is. Jesus prays in John 17, 5, and this is why he can do it. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He simply is the God who is. Point number one. 
There is therefore something that reaches back before in the beginning and is. In a very real sense, in reading through this chapter, one clearly sees two categories emerge. On one hand, there is God, and on the other hand, there is everything else. There is therefore an irreducible distinction between the creator and the creature. God is not a creature in his absolute sense, and we are not, in our absolute sense, creators. His existence, therefore, is thus a self-existence. He has no cause, as it were. He just is. He has always been. Contrast that with everything else in the universe which began somehow, someplace, at some time. Folks, God made it all. Everything in the universe is therefore dependent on him and belongs to him. This is his world, his kingdom, his universe. Much of the world today wants to place God in a box. There are places and times that it's appropriate to speak about God or to maybe let God out and maybe interact a bit with him. According to Genesis 1, that is complete nonsense. Folks, this is his world. Right? Everything belongs to him. We see very clearly that there is but just one God. It's very clear that the creator is distinct from everything else that is. He stands apart from creation and he does so alone. This is such an important concept that the author, Moses, we believe, wrote the book of Genesis sometime around the year 1400 B.C. is so careful just in the language that he uses. I'll ask you to look at verse 16 quickly. Verse 16, if you notice, this should stand out as a bit odd when you read it. When he talks about how he made the sun and the moon, you'll notice he doesn't use words like sun and moon. Rather, look at verse 16, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. It's important to notice the words he uses and the sequence which they follow. Right? When he wrote this, the competing narrative of the world would have been one that they uncovered in around 1800, which was called the Enuma Elish. And the Enuma Elish was the, was the basic uh, creation myth of the Babylonian Empire. And so it would have gone back, it would have dated around the time of Genesis in terms of its, its writing when it actually was originated. And its narrative, if you were to read the first nine verses, bear a striking similarity to the book of Genesis, first nine verses. It's quite odd, in fact, how similar they are. But it's interesting here because as Moses writes these words, he leaves out sun and he leaves out moon because in Babylonian Empire, the sun and the moon were gods themselves. And so he wants to leave no room for misunderstanding, no room for misinterpretation, no thought that there's other gods that exist. So he just eliminates those words from writing it. Doesn't even utter them. No sun, no moon. The greater light, and the lesser light. Oh, and by the way, also the stars. The sequence there is important as well because in Babylonian times, they would have seen their gods, they would have seen the creation actually in the other way. They would have saw the stars as the, the most, the most uh, godlike of all of the creatures, right? The second to it would have been the moon, and the third, a distant third, would have been the sun. So as Moses pins these words, he flips the order around again, not to allow there to be any room of confusion that God has company, right? But rather to make it crystal clear that God is only God, that there are no other 
gods. He stands apart from creation as the God of it all. He's one God. Also, it's very clear that this one God has complete and total authority. Whatever he wants to do, whatever he wills to do, it is so. It happens. There's nothing in the universe that limits him, that restricts, restricts him. There's nothing that can stop him from doing what he wants to do. He works by himself and nothing can stop him. He has total authority over everything. He's one with authority. That's who God is. He's the God who is. Also, we see that he's the God who works. He's the God who works. The God who is is also the God who works. He's God who works out his plan in space and time. Here's how the chapter sort of plays out as far as I can tell. Verse 1 serves sort of as a summary statement, like a heading or a title over the entire chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1, sort of a heading summary statement of what happens. If you were to read the first part of chapter 2, you kind of get a closing summary statement. And then verse 2 of chapter 1 describes the conditions that existed at the very beginning. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. These are the conditions. Chaotic and dark. As close to nothing as our minds can even fathom. And God comes to. God gets involved, bringing newness and energy and utterly foreign, that is utterly foreign to anything else that was. And God says, let there be light. And there was light. It was so. Six days filled with activity. Specifying the period of time beyond day is not what the author intends because it's not what is most important. The emphasis of the text is not on the period of time, but rather what happened within time. Those six days were filled with creative, productive activity. See how the days kind of correspond to one another? You see days one through three, and day one creates the light, and two, the waters, and three, the land. How they kind of correspond with the three days that follow. And four, he takes the, what he made in the light, the sun, the stars, and the moon, fills it up. Day two corresponds to day five, when he makes the waters and the air and the earth, he puts the creatures that fill the air and the waters. And day three, he makes the land, and then he puts creatures that crawl and and swarm across the land. It's as if the first three days he's making spheres, and the next three days he's filling those spheres with life. And we know that when he does this, over and over again we hear that it was good. It was exactly how God had planned it. Exactly how he wanted it. Notice the pattern. God said it came to be. God saw it was good. Pattern over and over and over again shows us that God had a plan for this creation. He took what was chaotic and makes it ordered. And not just ordered, he makes it beautiful. He makes it amazing, glorious, good, he calls it. It has purpose. It has design. Folks, this is how God works. Let's consider for a moment what did not happen. God did not come across a rock 
floating in space, budding with potential. Too good to watch it go to waste, he thinks to himself, so he says, I can really work with this. That is not what happened. God doesn't need potential to do his job. He creates it. He initiates it. He, he doesn't need the help of things like physics or processes or theories, right? God is and he does as he pleases. Folks, we have to be really careful not to put Genesis in a box and just place it, maybe like a book on a shelf dedicated to history books. We have to stop treating Genesis and the rest of the Bible like some sort of stuffy museum guide filled with artifacts and legends of the past, stories of what God used to do. Sure, in the Bible we learn a great deal about the history of the ancient Near East, but get this, God hasn't changed. And as much as we would like to think differently, neither have we. And I'm here to tell you right now, that is the best news you could ever hear. God is still. He is, he was, he is right now. He's unchanging. He's a God who works, and he's a God who wants to work right here and right now. He has a track record of, of visiting, of moving in, and of changing things, transforming things. Where there was no, no light, it was covered in darkness, God speaks light, and it is. Where there was death, God gives life. Chaos, he brings order. Where things are ugly, he makes them beautiful. He still does. Folks, I'm tempted to place the Bible on a shelf in my library and label it historical. This is who God is now. Psalm 136 is super helpful. I'm going to read this one too. If you want to turn there, you can. I won't read it all. But I want you to notice the pattern. I'm going to leave out a chunk in the middle. This is Psalm of David, 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights for his steadfast love endures forever. To the, the sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever. Skip to verse 23 and notice what changes. He goes on verses 10 through 21 and says specifically about the way that God has worked throughout Israel's redemptive history. In verse 23... It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. He goes from the past to the present. He rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 25, he who gives food to all the flesh, for his steadfast love 
endures forever. Folks, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, is not just a God who used to do some pretty cool stuff. He's a God who wants to visit you today. Who, who wants to initiate and transform and move in and, can, and totally take over. This is the God who works. It's a good thing. I'm a piece of work. And so are you. Every single one of us is. Every single one of us is dependent on God's working hand moving in our life. He's the God who is and he's the God who works Thirdly, he's the God who speaks. We said before that how is not the central focus of the chapter. And just pause real quick there. I do think it's important. There are many of, many of these questions. I do think it's good for us as Christians. Uh, we don't have to check our intellect at the door to have a life and live a life of faith. Okay? Much of the world thinks that that's what you do, but that's not what we do. And so we want to think deeply about these things. Just don't have... Can't do much in 30 minutes, okay? What we're going to do as a church, though, is we have provided several places where we're going to have these conversations about creation and, and some of the big questions that Genesis often causes our modern minds. And these are, are really modern questions um, to, to ask. So those are going to be coming up. You'll see them in emails and in bulletins. I don't know the dates and times necessarily. They will be at Central Campus, and there will be resources that we will give you so you can carry on this conversation, think deeply about it. There will be sort of some questions and answers. I'm not exactly sure the format, but our hope is to kind of step into this conversation and help you think through it, okay? That being said, how is not the central focus of the chapter, okay? It's not to be neglected. We do learn something about how God made the world in this chapter. Something that, well, at the very minimum, we can't deny is clearly in the text. Or on the surface, it may not satisfy our scientific questions. It is exactly what we need to get in on it. Okay? God who speaks. Ten times throughout the chapter, we are told, God said. Make the obvious observation that speaking is what a person does. So this is great news. Because it means that God, this amazing God who works miraculous wonders, is a God who also makes himself known. He speaks to reveal himself. We can know him ultimately by his word. At his word, waves come crashing against the shore. At his word, stars begin to glow and glimmer in the night sky. At his word, creatures swarm across the land, fill the sky and the sea below. All of this stunningly beautiful creation is ordered through his powerful word. The universe is created and it is good and it all belongs to him through his word. Genesis 1 is filled with hope and with possibility. The world we live in as a result is also filled with hope and possibility. But some of you here today, your experience navigating this world says otherwise. Maybe even where you're at right here, right now, this morning, would push against what I just articulated. A world filled with hope and possibility. As you think of your life, your situation, maybe your soul feels dead. Maybe darkness and chaos 
best describe where you are right now. Possibility has passed you by. That's what you might be thinking. That's might, that might be how you articulate how you feel. That dark, empty rock floating alone in space may sound slightly familiar to you. And if that does, if that's the case, then I assure you, you are precisely where you need to be. The only way out of the darkness, the only way out of the deadness is for God to visit you. The only way out of the darkness, the only way into the light is for God to be God, which I assure you, he's really good at doing. He has to initiate. He has to work. He has to speak a word. With a simple word, our lives could be changed forever. Transformed in ways that we can't even dream or imagine. Folks, we need a word. Our need right now is exactly what the universe needed to exist. A word. It's what we need most. A word from God. And it's exactly what he gives us. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Folks, his word is unstoppable. His word coming to you is unstoppable. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It is by his word that you and I have the privilege of being called children of God. Folks, our God is not a silent God. And there's no greater thing in our life that we lack or that we need than for him to speak to us. And he does so primarily through his son who came to this world to give his life so that you and I could be called children of God. And he doesn't just speak to us, give us his word to get us in the kingdom. Folks, he gives us his word daily. His word still speaks as we commune with him to encourage us, to show us what it is that we're lacking and what we need. His word is what we share with those around us. It is the source of life in all of the universe. And apart from his, from, from his word, we find it difficult to even find meaning for our existence. He is the God who is. He's the God who works. He still works today, and he does so primarily through his word. So our job as his people is to listen, is to listen to God. I want to give you an assignment this week. It's two things. It's a two-part assignment, okay? I'll make it easy. They each, they each begin with the letter B, okay? So I'll make it real easy. Just remember B as you're walking out of this room. The first thing I want you to think about, 
and identify in your life. Are there barriers, ways in your life where you have limited God? Are there barriers that exist in your life where you have drawn limitations around what only God can do? Are there barriers that keep you from feeling alive and ordered and good? And they keep you reminded of darkness that he pulled you out of. What are those barriers? Can you identify barriers that are keeping you from living the life that God had intended you to live? Second thing I want you to think through is breakthroughs. Can you look in your life and specifically point out breakthrough after breakthrough where God has spoken, where God has worked? And here's what I want you to do with those barriers and breakthroughs. I want you to share those with each other. I want you to articulate those to somebody else. It could be a spouse, somebody in your community group, somebody at church, somebody at work. I don't care who it is. I want you to articulate What are those barriers in your life? What are those breakthroughs? As we even think of Psalm 36, it's so good for us to remember where we have come from so we can have any idea of what God might do. He's called us to live a life that is full of life. And that only happens when we are committed to meeting with Him. I mean, how amazing is that? The creator of the universe came to us The same way he initiated that activity, he does the same thing with us. And he offers it every single day. And as his people, we are people who are primarily shaped and molded and chiseled with his word. With his word. It's still at work today. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us real quick. But I'm also going to offer you an opportunity. Perhaps there's an area in your life, um, the worship team can kind of come up here and get on the stage while I'm doing this. Perhaps there's an area in your life, we're going to have the Lord's Supper communion here after this song. And during that time, there's going to be, you know, myself and some other folks kind of in the back there by that curtain who want to offer just an opportunity for you to pray with you, okay? As you've thought through areas where you need God to speak today, Um, We want to provide you a chance, a a sense of urgency, maybe you feel, okay? Maybe there's areas where you need resolution in your life. Maybe there's areas where you feel pain, where you feel more death than life. We want to take those to the creator of the universe right now. I don't want to let let you sit on them, okay? It's a good chance. You'll stand up, you'll worship, you'll sing some songs, you'll shake some hands, you'll leave, and you'll forget everything that happened in here. Odds are, that's what 90% of us are going to do, okay? So, I want to kick against that a bit, Okay, so we'll sing a song. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a song. While communion is happening, Lynn's going to come up and lead us in communion. And while he does that, if you want some immediate prayer in the back, I would encourage you to head back there and find one of us, okay? Why don't we stand and I'll pray for us right now as we close. Father God, our prayer this morning is very simple. We ask that you do not leave us where we are. Lord, I pray that none of us would be um, content with those barriers 
that may exist in our life that keep us from you. Lord, I pray some of us have been staring those barriers down day after day after day. And there's work to be done. And I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would do it right now. Lord, you would do it right now. We love you and we thank you that because you are the God who is, you're the God who works, and you're the God that speaks, Lord, we can be a people of possibility. We love you. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.
All right, before we go, church, um, first of all, if you're new here or if you haven't been connected, there's a connect card in the bottom of your little bulletin thing. You can fill that out, drop it in a blue box, and we'll get you connected. We'll get the chance to know you. It'd be great, okay? Um, before we go, two quick announcements. I'm going to say quick. They're actually really long ones, but I'm going to find the irreducible minimum that needs to be said to make sense of. Okay, first thing, financially, um, through August 31st, you can sit down if you want. You don't have to. I'm gonna, I was hoping to keep you on your feet, so I would just rush through it. Through August 31st, our church is behind about $78,000 from a budget. Okay, so our prayer is that you as a family, maybe if you call church, this is primarily for members who call Parkview home, um, that you would consider, you know, just maybe sometimes summer months going here and there, you can miss giving and things like that, and that can happen. Um, but we are 78% behind, so we want to make sure our, our membership knows that. Um, and if need be, we'll kind of make some cuts throughout our budget in this giving year if that has to happen. Okay, so secondly, there was a vote congregational meeting. Um, we kind of changed the statement of faith primarily where um, the premillennial return of Christ um, stands. And so that needed 99% vote to pass, got 97%. So it did not pass. Statement of faith did not change. The good news is 97% shows a tremendous amount of unity um, for our church. It's a really hard thing to get 99%. So anyways, the elders, the leadership is going to pull back, kind of learn what's the next step. It's, a, it's not because we're trying to change or pull something over your eyes. It's because the EFCA, our denomination, made a change. And so we're trying to come in line with what they did. Okay. If you have questions about that, please see me. Lynn is an expert in this and he can really help you out. Okay. So that being said, that was pretty quick. On your feet, and it is by the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of our Father and the fellowship of our Spirit that I send you out. We will see you next week. Have a good one.